I've been talking to a, a small squad of doctors lately, and they're all like, you got to eat on a regular schedule, and that helps with your mental health. Yeah. And I, I still don't do it. Turns out <laughs> food can be nutritious. Who knew? <laughs> I've just been slamming cold hot dogs for <laughs> 15 years. <laughs> It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. In this episode, trying to make sense of the world and your place in it while dealing with chronic depression and making comedy for a living. We've done shows like that before, mind you. Kind of our thing. But in this episode, a surprising amount of food, including hot dogs, cabbage, pumpkin puree, kidney beans, and Minnesota hot dish. Also, flying lawnmowers and talking cats. Buckle up. My name is Emmy Blotnick. I am a comedian, and we are at the Marketplace Studios in Midtown Manhattan. Emmy Blotnick has written for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and was head writer on Comedy Central's The President Show. She's performed on Conan and Colbert and in clubs across the country. I love her stand-up because it always feels like she's just figuring things out. These days, I've been, I've been on a weird kick these days. I've been buying a lot of vitamins and supplements on Amazon. I think it's because I don't like to admit when I'm depressed. I go like, well, the problem is I'm not taking fish oil. <laughs> See, I know how to fix this. I just need to buy five to seven bottles of unregulated supplements that are probably full of cat litter. That'll fix it. That's going to fix it. And I mean, I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to take, so I take recommendations from anybody. The bar is so low for me. I go on Amazon, I read the reviews, I just go with the wind. Like, I was looking at a page for magnesium powder, and this guy wrote, this stuff made my dog's hips feel better. I was just like, yeah, yeah, add to cart. Let's see what this can do. Emmy grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with a strong sense of otherness. My mom is a Hungarian immigrant. My dad was like an Orthodox Jew, uh, Russian man. And so we were He's different. an immigrant as well? He, he grew up in New York, but his parents were immigrants. Okay. And so, like, we, we weren't, we were not like the classic Boston family, I guess. I think if we had lived in Newton or like one of the sort of more like Jewy pockets mm -hmm. uh -huh. of the greater Boston area, I might not have felt like such a like sore thumb. But um, my parents were just very, um, they're, they're sort of like fear and shame based, if that <laughs> makes sense. Sorry to jump in so fast. Um, <laughs> Come to the right place. Yeah. You know, with immigrants, like there's obvious like incredible hardship in getting here and then it affects how you see the world like they're they're very oriented towards survival and safety and um 
I, I think especially like there's, if you want to really jump in deep right away. Um, yes. There's, <laughs> I had talked with my therapist about this a while ago that she calls it like Holocaust DNA, mm. which is where if you have like a, a link to the Holocaust that um, it stays in you, even if like, you know, like I am safe. I was born after it ended, but I still have the fear just in my genes, I think. Mm-hmm. Um Fear genes, you know. It <laughs> By Blotnik. <laughs> it sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does. So, yeah, I think those things informed my um, childhood well, quite a bit. inherited trauma. That's what, mm-hmm, you know, that's a, mm-hmm, that's a real mm-hmm. thing. Emmy says stuff like depression was known about, but... It wasn't something we, like, talked about a lot. My parents were pretty judgmental about other people's mental health issues, and then... I was able to sort of triangulate and be like, oh, so if I have those things, then I am, I am like messed up. And so I will be mocked yeah, by I, those <sighs> tasked to protect me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit like, yeah, I think I sort of internalized like they were not, they probably both would have benefited from some medication and some therapy and they didn't really do it until much later. So, um, you know, I had to like, it had to get bad enough with me to be like, you know what? Fuck what they said. I'm yeah. I'm taking the pills. <laughs> and that's how I said it to my psychiatrist. <laughs> Give me the pills. <laughs> Fuck my dad. <laughs> I, did, I really hope. I hate that I said this. I'm sorry. <laughs> this always happens to me on podcasts is I like, I, I feel like I, I go into some like real forced weird bit and then slip right into self-loathing. So <laughs> this is great. It saves a lot of time because usually I have to work with the guest to build up to the self-loathing. So Emmy had this inherited trauma. She was in a place without a lot of people like her, had family that didn't really see depression as a thing. And there was a lot of pressure. I have family on the East coast and um, I know that like, what college you go to and and how you're getting ready for college and like you know it's it's achievement oriented for for a kid nice you know cambridge massachusetts is where harvard is at yes and like i wonder how much of that pressure you felt and how much that contributed to your mental state it that's i'm thank you for saying this cuz yeah it is definitely a pressure cooker and it feels insane and one of the great realizations of being an adult and being a comedian is finding out firsthand that this does not matter. It doesn't matter. One of my smartest friends is, and it's also like there are so many kinds of smart. And where I grew up, it is in, almost entirely focused on academic intelligence, mm. like book smart. How which do you is, jump through these specific hoops? Yeah, standardized tests mm-hmm. and extracurriculars and, and making yourself look good on paper. And I know that those people who look good on paper, some of them are terrible in person. <laughs> so it's, you know, like this is also part of the sort of like secret bubble of the family thing is that uh, you have to achieve on the outside of the bubble so nobody suspects anything is weird. As I was applying to colleges is when my dad, uh, he he passed in December of, I think it was 2005, and I graduated in 2006. Okay. So he so it was, was... right at the beginning of that serious ramp up. Yes. And he was um, like the... I mean, he, ugh, he used to get me like... XL t-shirts that said MIT on them for me to sleep in. Like I was ever going to go to MIT. Like it's so insane. So there was. 
a lot of osmosis you would <laughs> yes yes you sleep in this shirt until you become the shirt <laughs> and i i felt like um like i was not really seen for what i was good at mm. and like what i was good at was not appreciated in my dad's eyes at all were you interested by then or or when you went to northwestern in in comedy was that the thing i was but i didn't feel like it was okay to say that cuz i think um my dad certainly would not have liked that. Um, and then I felt some duty because my mom was on her own. She was starting to, like, date a little bit, but I think there was still enough going on with her that I was like, I can't add to the pile of problems. And uh, being like, hi, I'm a traveling clown is not the thing that your, like, recently widowed mother wants to hear. <laughs> About all that tuition you're paying. Yeah, because it is, that's the weird thing is, like, I, I think there's not a straight line from, like, you know, fancy college to being a comedian because it's, it's a profession that you kind of have to cobble together mm -hmm. yourself. And, like, of course, being smart helps with that. But, yeah, you can be a million other kinds of smart. At Northwestern University, Emmy got a communications studies degree. I don't know what that is. I did it, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> You've and, got a degree <laughs> in it. And so, yeah, I don't know what it means. Um, I by the, by the time I was a senior in college, I auditioned for an improv group and a sketch group and got on the improv group. So I was doing like long form improv with kids who proudly wanted to be in comedy, TV, film, etc., etc. Second City. Yeah. yeah, and so suddenly I was like, "Oh, here's a group of people for whom this is normal and good." And it was like it felt very homey. It felt like really comfortable and good. So um yeah, it helped a lot that there was like this pod of kids that were like openly celebrating a desire to enter a career of unsteadiness. Improv comedy comes up on this show all the time as a therapeutic thing. Improv teaches you to enjoy staying in the moment, not obsessing on the past or future. You know, that's probably true of like of any any pursuit like this like i imagine when you're in the the middle of like a, a gymnastics floor routine you're not thinking yeah. about like your mom is sad um. <laughs> <laughs> any any kind of sports really yeah except maybe baseball because i think in the outfield that's There's all too you much think time. about <laughs> i used to play outfield i was a, i played on a baseball team as a kid and i was always in the outfield and it really felt like just wallowing in depression uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then the one time i this is sad. On my 11th birthday, I wanted to play a baseball game as my birthday party. I made myself first baseman for the first time ever and took a ball to the face because I was daydreaming. So, you know. Yeah, that's a very busy spot. You can't really. You can't, you can't do that. But, I, yeah, I had to leave my own birthday party to go to the emergency room. Oh, my God. <laughs> Happy birthday. You know, yeah. So I think, it's yeah. It's what you've always wanted. Absolutely. A broken face. Yes, that's what happened. And I learned an important lesson about not promoting yourself too much. <laughs> but I think, so with improv, because I, I did improv for a year in college and then a couple years in New York when I first moved here. And uh, it's, yes, you get that, the freed up feeling of being in the moment. Um, the lows are a place you've probably already been in one form or another. And I think with improv, you get this, 
the 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 beautiful thing of like your team or your group being like your family a little bit. Like mm-hmm. I am a I'm a pretty big believer in the idea of a chosen family. That's been like a a, a very freeing thing as uh-huh. a, as a grown up to be like, okay, so my family is what they are. They are great in some ways, they're terrible in some ways, and I get to find the qualities that I was missing in new people, and maybe they find those qualities in me. What was it about comedy that made it so appealing, or or improv, or just the whole making people laugh uh, thing that made you say, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to do this, above all other things I could be doing? Well, I think, you know, my my parents would never have said, like, go do comedy, but they both really loved comedy. Um, and the times when we would be watching, like, watching comedy shows together or listening to comedy albums or whatever were moments of peace. So I think I had a, like, subconscious, you know, some sort of hardwired instinct that like laughing is good, laughing is helpful, um, silliness is an escape, absurdity is an escape, um, and and that like that it, that it, it I, I without knowing this at the time that it makes the good chemicals go. <laughs> mm, it was a comfort then. Yes. Yeah, I, I write about in my book how the the structure of comedy is very reassuring to someone with a chaotic brain. Like you know, there's going to be a premise, a setup, and a punchline. Yeah, and that's going to repeat. Yes, and things <laughs> resolve, and you don't necessarily have to go too deep into anything because yeah. the laugh is the priority. Right. So, like for me, storytelling is much more daunting than joke telling because mm. you you have like. Um, there's you can sort of coast on on the laughs and feel like you're um, not going to die, <laughs> <laughs> which is always nice. Yeah. <laughs> After moving to New York, Emmy worked as a TV writer and stand up for many years. Now, at least until COVID-19, the stand up work was happening enough that she could travel a lot. With travel, you often hear about it being a trigger because you have no foundation, like you have no home for a while and it's, and you feel, you feel unsafe. Yeah, I think I, I, that's true for sure. I, the, the counterpoint though, that has been really good for me, I think is that, so each new place I go, I assume that like, this is going to be the one where they hate me or don't understand me or like what I'm saying doesn't resonate. And this you is know, your coping mechanism. This is what I <laughs> sometimes I, t- I have a voice that says like, you're going to get to Grand Rapids and they're going to hate your fucking oh, guts. Okay. This is and, the voice in your head. This yeah, isn't a strategy. Yeah. Okay. This is going to be the one. Colorado's the state that hates you. Just wait till you get there <laughs> and you're going to find out that they, they, they don't like um, little nervous Jews <laughs> and, <laughs> or whatever thing, you know, whatever thing they could hate about you, they'll find it. Right. And, the sort of therapeutic thing has been finding that that is not the case anywhere so far. Uh-huh. Um, like not every gig goes perfectly, but it's never been an entire audience sides against mm, Detroit kind of. Di- no. OK. But, <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, you go and you're like, OK, these people may not look like me or talk like me, but we will still connect. And that's that's a very good discovery to have over and over again. That you're going to find find your people there. At least some of the people yeah. in the room are going to be your people. Yes. Yeah. 
do you have um, rituals on the road? Do you have like a routine to kind of keep you sorted out? I I've been adding to my like list of sort of creature comforts as I go. All those little familiar things can make a bad hotel room feel okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, meditation apps are good. And um, let's see what else. What else? Smells you like? If there's a, a familiar smell that smell that makes you go like, oh, I've, I know this smell. Do you pack smells? I pack some smells. How do you pack smells? Like little little sprays, little oils, okay. little lotions, little things like that. Those help with like a, if you're staying in like a forty dollar hotel room, mm-hmm. it helps. Be like, oh, lavender. <laughs> smells are good. Um, snacks, familiar snacks are mm-hmm. good. Rituals around like eating and drinking are good. Um, I would love to have an exercise routine, but I don't. Yeah, that's the one that I I hate. Oh, I I just hate exercising in <laughs> in general, but especially in view of any living being. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's generally how the hotel exercise options work. Because that's well, most hotel gyms are empty, but my yeah. brain won't absorb that fact. Most of the time, the hotel gym has nobody in it. But the thought of I just I am I I assume there's gonna be a couple of people waiting to be like. Look at this loser trying to wear sneakers. Mm. And it's, yeah. <laughs> Those she, Reeboks aren't fooling anyone. No, but no. I am so, my my brain and my body are such separate organisms. They don't communicate with each other all the time. And so, you know, being like, hey, body, why don't you try running? It doesn't even answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not picking up the call. No, it's asleep. It's asleep in the control room. Just ahead, meeting a mental disorder with ridiculousness. The horribly wrong Wheel of Fortune answer that made a difference in Emmy's career and self-care. Here's Emmy Blotnick from her album Party Nights. My Amazon account is in bad shape. It's uh, it's a lot of a lot of self-help books, and that makes your recommendations real tragic when you buy a lot of self-help books. Because every time I go to Amazon, they're like, "Because you enjoyed the book Fatherless Women." <laughs> no, Amazon, don't even finish that sentence. Come on. And by the way, I wouldn't say I enjoyed Fatherless Women. <laughs> a sad read but (laughs) I've just been I've been trying to throw them off my scent you know sometimes I just try to click on cool stuff to make them think I have a cool life I put in an hour just clicking on like snowboards and big boxes of big condoms I just want them to think I'm busy hitting the slopes in my magnums (laughs) that's right Amazon The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. 
can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety disorders, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to Make It Okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Emmy Blotnick, who sent me this clip recorded on her iPhone of some new material. She thought you might enjoy it. This is what's been making me feel better lately. Have you guys seen these ads? It's Michael Phelps talking about going to therapy. It's for like a therapy app. And there are billboards all over New York where you see him and he's sitting in an armchair and it says, therapy changed my life and it can change your life too. And I had no idea it was Michael Phelps, because when he has his shirt on, it's anybody. <laughs> I would just be waiting at the train and be like, okay, some guy is depressed. Join the fucking club, buddy. Welcome to the train. It took weeks, and then one day I finally realized, I was like, oh, it's Michael Phelps, it's been him the whole time. I didn't recognize him dressed on land. so good. I think he's such a good person to talk about depression because he's achieved so much, right? Like if Michael Phelps is depressed, then you know it's inescapable, right? <laughs> you feel a little bit better. I mean, they always say exercise is the cure for depression. <laughs> Who's exercising more than Michael Phelps? <laughs> right, my God, he swims like 8,000 laps a day, every day, and then he gets out of the pool and goes like, is there a point to all of this? We all need to find our own therapeutic treatments for depression, of course, and that could mean ones that are off the beaten path. One of my favorite sort of escapes when I was, especially in like high school and college, was to just like get lost down YouTube rabbit holes. And that was before I, I felt that the Internet was not quite so vicious yet. Mm -hmm. um, and there was like a real sort of organic nature to weird bloopers popping up like you know like uh, sort of America's funniest home video type things but that would emerge from the internet and this clip from Wheel of Fortune was one of those where it was like an 11 second video that had gone kind of viral um, of this woman guessing self potato when it's pretty clearly self portrait this is from that original Wheel of Fortune video Lolita. Oh, self-potato? Sorry. No. <laughs> Michael? Self-portrait. Yeah, that's it. All right. <laughs> no, no, no. But, you know, things come... But I just want to confirm, you did say self-potato? Okay. <laughs> Don't you worry about it. Little, little absurdities like that were... Uh, yeah, band-aids, like little, little, little things that I could clutch to f stay afloat. So, uh, you know, I had self-potato in my head as just a, a phrase that consistently made me laugh. I had a label maker, and I remember typing out self-potato on the label maker and putting it on <laughs> some of my belongings, like, you know, be on, like, my phone or a binder or whatever. And, yeah, I think I had to, at some point, I was like, why do I love this so much? Um, which is a good... I mean, for any sort of writer, creative person, when you love something, it's good to sort of scratch at it and be like, why does this bring me happiness when so few things do? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I realized like, oh, I think I relate to this word 
So she put the word to work. Here's Emmy on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Hi! Oh, wow, it is so cool to be here. Do you guys want to hear about my favorite Wheel of Fortune clip? Okay, good, good. Okay, so the puzzle is mostly solved. You can tell the answer is self-portrait. And this lady buzzes in and goes, oh, self-potato. And then right away you can see her go like, oh, no. And it's so good because self-potato means nothing. It means nothing at all. But I love it so much, I really want it to mean something. So I think this is it. You all know what a couch potato is. A self-potato is just when you don't need the couch for that to be who you are. You know, it's just taking the couch potato mentality to go. Thank you. Emmy is empathetic toward that Wheel of Fortune contestant. I feel like I do that throughout the day. Blurt uh-huh. out something too confidently and then have to retract and apologize. Immediately. Like, <laughs> I feel like I'm always backpedaling out of the thing I just said. Uh-huh. So it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta love it in a format like Wheel of Fortune where you buzz in, announce something. Yeah. It's like... It's so much momentum to then be like, oh, God, I just I have invented I've invented a concept by accident. Yeah. It's not like if you're just playing Pictionary at home. This goes out to an international audience. Yes. The retirement communities around the world are watching you be dumb. But she's she's a cool lady, and I, I had a couple of friends where we would constantly be sending these things around. There's one video of a lawnmower soaring through the air to the song Cotton Eye Joe. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? And it makes me laugh so hard. It makes me laugh harder than a lot of like really well-crafted comedy bits. Uh-huh. And so little things like that, I'd be like, yes, here is a moment of light that I can keep and go back to whenever I want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- that goat that screams like a man is one of those. The Tons cat of- that says, oh, no, 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 no. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. No, 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 no. Any cat that displays a human behavior, we're so lucky to have. (laughs) Okay, YouTube can be a lot of fun. We have established that. It's not always fun, of course. I have found, especially with, like, the culture of YouTube, um, the, the feed, like, the responses from strangers can get really cruel, and... So, you know, it did make me reevaluate a little bit because I had a couple of of late night sets in the same year and got this like flood of nasty comments that were pretty personal for the first time and realized like, oh, I don't know if I like this experience enough to keep doing it, but I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some of it was learning like my I think. mm, they're really good at finding the things you already hate about yourself. They're really good at pointing out the shortcomings you already know you have. And so um, it feels like being found out to be like a fraud or a bad or or a bad. A um, bad. Yeah, you might be a bad. <laughs> and I, I think I had an initial slump of being like, wow, this is like it's too much to – to take in and then being like, oh, wait, I don't have to take it in. So, mm-hmm. but that took quite a bit of time to, to like for my skin to thicken a little bit. 
So now bombing in person feels almost easy compared to someone writing a paragraph that uh-huh. feels like it's ripped out of your diary and then put into the second person. You know what I mean? I found your flaws. Well, I imagine it must work the other way, too, to some extent. The people who love you can find you more easily. The people whose experiences you speak to are finding you more easily. Yes, but I do think with depressives, maybe I shouldn't generalize. I'll say for me that I don't let compliments in very well. Um, Praise and compliments, I distrust like nice people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you have to chip away at also. How about this? I heard about this concept recently, and it sort of blew my mind. Someone told me that you can let in the healthy, positive stuff and also not let in the negative stuff. I mean, easier said than done. Of course. But like I I thought ethically that I had to either let all of it in or none of it in to be fair to the cruelty. Oh, my God. <laughs> I understand. That, that speaks to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the crazy thing is that when you let in the good stuff and start to like yourself a little bit, um, and I, I, I know you're supposed to love yourself, but I'm, I think I'm in yeah. the, I think I just, I can occasionally Liking like. Liking is fine. Like is where yeah. I'm at, um, occasionally. I, I think uh, the more you can do that, then the better you are, and it's sort of, it's like a, a a, a snowball, a uphill snowball. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, it it grows in its own way, which is good. Yeah. But um, yeah, I have like very harsh, critical voices in my head. I have um, a distrust of kindness, <laughs> which sounds insane. The um, one thing that has also helped a lot is that I um, I am recently engaged to a guy from Minnesota who has that kindness and that politeness and that um, sort of light in him. And so I'm exposed to it all the time now. And it's, it is its own kind of exposure therapy to spend a lot of time with someone who is nice. Can he make a good hot dish? He's incredible at hot dish. Nice. Yeah. He's, he's, um, he is a, a all around, he's a chef. He's an all around, oh. like very nourishing person. Oh, you're going to have so many great noodles. Yeah. <laughs> They've just been buttered all this time. Oh. They're getting sauced now. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing, when I used to get, before I met him, I, my depression used to show up as like eating things that were really sad and weird and sometimes not food. Mm-hmm. Like I remember in one weird bout of depression, this is weird, I once, uh, I once ate an entire head of cabbage at room temperature with nothing on it, alone in silence. And then I tried to do bits about it where I'm like, y'all ever eat a head of cabbage alone in silence? <laughs> and no one related. Of course they don't relate. That's a weird thing to do to punish yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like to judge on this show, but that's weird as fuck. You want one more? I'll give you another. Please. I once ate a 32-ounce can of pumpkin puree at room temperature off a butter knife in silence. The whole thing. What kind of, I don't know how you classify this, but it's like, it's so clearly, it's like cutting, but with food, which sucks because I love food. So you can't, you know, if you weaponize that against yourself, it's so sad. Here's your New Yorker shouts and murmurs essay, cooking tips, (laughs) a a small recipe book for the severely depressed. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And include, you know, include the directions like serve 
in silence. Absolutely. Eat from the can. <laughs> Be careful can. of sharp edges. You will need one butter knife. Oh, my God. One I can once, opener. I cut my finger on a can of, like, kidney beans or something that I was going to eat out of the can like a like a dog on its first day as a human. <laughs> and I, I cut my finger and I freaked out because like blood is one of these things. I, I just am like, I don't know how to do that. And I had to go to urgent care. They bandaged my finger up like huge, like just like uh, uh, probably a three inch circumference uh-huh. of bandage. And then I went home and finished the can. <laughs> <laughs> You had already made the meal. Yeah, I did all the cooking. So I had to be careful about talking about some of this stuff on stage because it does. It was so red flaggy to people that I oh I spilled a, a butternut squash soup into my bed, and that was a bit that got cut from my half hour on Comedy Central because I think everybody was like, I don't know if you should tell people that. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to alarm the audience. And I I feel that's the thing is that like I you know I perform a lot and our moods change and our brain chemicals change sometimes day to day especially when you're figuring out your medication and your therapy and your all your ways of in your smells and your ways of managing things Mm -hmm. and sometimes it slips out how like that the darkness you're showing the audience is just uh, uh, scratching the surface sometimes you I let out too much, bum them out, make them afraid, make them worry for me. And those are the ones where I'm like, ah, shit, I got to double up my appointments. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you can just, if you can hit that sweet spot that, that uh, you know, that they feel seen with their own weirdnesses. That's my goal. That's always the goal. Emmy Blotnick is now on the upswing. And a big part of that is a change in therapy. She had been in therapy a bunch in the past, and while it helped her understand her problems, it didn't help solve them. So the things she discovered were interesting, just not useful. Emmy started EMDR work, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, a type of therapy aimed at reprogramming the mind to better cope with trauma. There are a couple of ways of doing it. It's either you follow like a light that bounces back and forth or you hold on to tappers, like little buzzing beepers. Sarah tappers. Yes. And it's so I I always wanted a pager when I was a child. So this is basically it feels like you are a very busy um, Wall Street person in the 80s or 90s holding on to two. Or drug dealer. Yes, exactly. Enterprising drug dealer. Exactly. Another archetype. But whatever business you're in, you're doing great. You're doing great. Things (laughs) are going well. Yeah, yeah. You got a sky pager. (laughs) Two vibrating sky pagers that keep you ground, supposedly keep you grounded in the moment so that when you relive bad memories, you don't get totally carried away by them. And so it's hard and um, kind of exhausting, like emotionally exhausting. But uh, I think it's getting at my stuff in a different way. Hmm. So, Are there sp- often EMDR is for very specific traumas. Is that the case with you? It is. Okay. And it's a lot of like childhood stuff that I was having trouble putting into words. So it's that it was easier to think of in terms of like feelings and images and sensory things. So mm-hmm. this this works with that. What, uh, we don't have to get into what those specific traumas were, but were they interfering in your day-to-day life by that point? A bit. I mean, I think like ugh, there's so many things about therapy that sound like cliches when you say them, but um, I do think of like 
the story you tell yourself about yourself, like that I think I was telling myself a story that like I was gross and something is like inherently wrong with me. And a lot of that was tied to stuff that happened before I was speaking in full sentences, I feel like. So Mm. I, you know, I, I, um, here's a bunch of ums for you to edit out. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I felt like it was, it was just time to take a different tack with everything. And how long ago was that? That was about a year ago. How's it working? It's working. I think I, it's been a combination in the like in the last year or so of switching from talking with a therapist once a week to beginning the like pharmaceutical adventure ride and this new type of therapy. So I do feel like things are getting better, but it's very it's I'm so impatient with all of it mm-hmm. and with every um, brain related person I talk to, every doctor, whatever. I'm like why isn't this going faster? So <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's such a, you have to chip away at this stuff so slowly and it's, it can be excruciating. I was talking with Jamila Jamel recently for an interview and, and uh, she talked about how these things worked really fast. Like there was specific things. And, and I've heard of that experience too, where people are like this sudden jolt, but it's with you, it sounds like it's been more of a a journey. It is, yeah. I I I long for an experience like that where <laughs> I have a magic, like it just snaps into focus and yeah. suddenly I'm not afraid. And you know, I can look everyone in the eye and say good day to you. And <laughs> um and I stop buying things on the internet in my sleep. And <laughs> you buy things in your sleep? Not in my sleep, but that's, But in your very weariness? Yes. In my weariness is when most of my credit card transactions take place. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that as a as a depression symptom. Well, that's the weird thing that I've found in the years of trying to manage this is that it's sort of like a lump in the rug and it where it goes moves around so much. So like I had a phase where I was eating really weirdly and lately I am buying weird things, but I'm eating great so it's you know like it's gonna move around yeah it's gonna move around something's gonna be weird something's gonna be weird what are the weird things you're buying um so lately it's been i have thought maybe that there is like a an infomercial product that will fix everything and as i say this out loud i'm like you fucking idiot (laughs) but i'm like maybe i need gel toe separators a weighted blanket a night guard a white noise machine uh you know so i have a lot of sleep accessories right uh-huh. now and um and a burgeoning collection of silk shirts <laughs> <laughs> and have any of these solved all your problems the silk feels great on the skin oh there you go i know i think um the uh let's see weighted blanket i can recommend Sincerely, yeah. um, if you were not held as a child, it makes up for years of distant parenting. Um, <laughs> I, Who I do. knew that parents were so easily replaced? <laughs> you just need a 20-pound bag of sand, and <laughs> you're great. <laughs> I do. I love the weighted blanket. I think um, um, bath-related products are good purchases, I don't know if you're a bath person. I feel like men are rarely bath people. Um, I can't. I don't. I'm too tall for most tubs. I do think and like, I'm only six feet tall. Yeah, I'm. It's it's unfair. The dimensions of tubs are absolutely unfair to men. Yeah. Um. They should make them longer and deeper for sad boys. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's going to be, let's you and me start a line of long bathtubs called sad boys. <laughs> Longer and deeper for you and your sadness. <laughs> However deep your sadness goes, this tub goes deeper. A salty bath can cure... At least it's a it's a good quick fix. Really, I, th- I think so. Twenty minutes in a salty bath, I Just believe. Salt helps. water? Yes, Epsom salts. They're oh. so they're cheap and available, and uh, something happens in there. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so that's a product you can buy that does actually help. Yes, and I think by we'll the time we'll be back on the Home Shopping Network for Saturdays. Really, I'm so sorry that I have such no, this shallow, is fascinating. okay, such no. such um, you know superficial band aids for <laughs> what is a real issue. <laughs> My conversation with Emmy Blotnick often came around to food. Part of that is because she's a comedian and food is funny. It just is. Listen to Weird Al Yankovic. But there was a food issue for Emmy in there as well. And it's getting better. Lately, well, this is the thing that when it was going, when it when I was like eating weird things to sort of like numb or punish myself, I think at the time I was talking to my therapist and I was like, how do I stop this? And she's like, it's a symptom. And I was like, fuck you. It's the problem. And she's (laughs) like, no, it's a symptom. And she was right. And of course she was right. Um, and so the more I treat the, the source of the issues, like the, the deep well of stuff, then the eating resolves itself. So Mm. living with a chef has been monumental in fixing this because he has spent, he dedicates his life to the enjoyment of food. And I would be insane to not go with him on that. So lately for the past few years, it's been like shockingly under control, but on the road sometimes when you're alone for days at a time and you're in a foreign place and there's a vending machine downstairs and you don't have it in you to go out and see what's in the town, sometimes you eat Nature Valley bars for many days in a row. Yeah, for, for all the meals. <laughs> so uh, it's, was that a know, holdover from from your childhood, the, the eating issues? It's weird. When I was a kid, I, I used food for comfort a lot and didn't think very much about it. Um, and I think I probably would have been classified more as like a binge, like an emotional binge eater as a kiddo. And then like it just got weirder into my 20s and now has kind of resolved. Um, but it might come back. You never know. Uh-huh. Your brain sort of I feel like you get those pathways going and then every you can your brain can remember them and be like, hey, you little shit, why don't you eat a cabbage? And you're like, <laughs> fuck, fuck. <laughs> Eat a milk bone, you fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I did eat a milk bone. Is depression funny? If if it wasn't, you wouldn't know me. It has to be. I mean, I it isn't. I agree. I feel like I've listened to other folks answer this, and I agree with the answer that it isn't funny while you're in it. But as soon as you're on the other side, boy, it's pretty fun to look back on. Like, boy, was I sad. Look at how many individual. Egg, look at all the eggs you cooked one at a time because you were sad. <laughs> look at those cabbage remains there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
that's that's another one of mine. Is if I'm frying one egg and being like, "There's your lunch," then that's like, "Oh, you gotta gotta talk to someone." You gotta go. <laughs> Time to make an appointment. <laughs> Should somehow hook it up to your phone. Yeah. Um, what do you know now about uh, mental health and mental illness that you wish you knew a long time ago? Oh, I like this question, and I want to answer it well. Um, it sounds cliche. It's the you're not alone, and it's the um, uh, the talking about it is key, and or writing about it or getting it out of you somehow. Like, I, I never want to journal when I'm depressed, but that is like one of the most instant releases, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and I do think like the more you hi- the more you try to hide it, the harder it is it the harder it is to move through the world. So I I and the last thing also is that it's real. I think if you grow up with parents who are not inclined to acknowledge it or who judge other people's mental health struggles, like it's very easy to minimize and trivialize and downplay what's going on in your head. And um, like one of the this show in particular, I feel like is is so good at illuminating like it's a condition. It's real. It's chemical. Sometimes it's um, you're not being pathetic. Emmy Blotnick is on the World Wide Web at emmyblotnick.com. She has won an Emmy Award, by the way, which makes me very happy in a kind of orderly universe kind of way. On our next episode, me and that book I'm always talking about, actual selections from the hilarious world of depression, the book, the audiobook. So the audiobook version of the book version of the podcast, where I say stuff like this. I'd gone through life with the belief, often heard in simple-minded quarters of popular psychology, that the past is the past and you just have to move on. Let it go, the simple-minded say, again, as if no one had ever tried that before. Don Henley and Glenn Fry wrote a song along these lines called Get Over It. My response song would be called Fuck Off, Don Henley and Glenn Fry. You don't know what you're talking about. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. The production team for this episode includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, Sarah Bruguer, and John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available. Text the word HOME to 741-741 for the crisis text line. Or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're free 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. MakeItOK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but MakeItOK has tips on what to say and what not to say, stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to MakeItOK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. Just search for the name of the show or search for Thwadballs. From the bedroom closet that currently functions as my office, I'm John Moe. Bye now. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. 